When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, Episode 39, The Passage. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Our topic today is the premiere episode of The Passage on Fox, which I don't even know what to say in terms of what kind of show this is. Is it supernatural? Is it pre-apocalypse? Is it a vampire show? Is it a government conspiracy thriller? What do you think, Dave? Uh, all of the above. And and I know you, you mentioned to me earlier that it certainly got buddy road trip <laughs> yeah. elements, at, at least in the pilot episode. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing that we're going to have to get into because people have to decide whether or not this is a show they're going to tune in for because it's got a couple of very unique ingredients to it. But it also has some tropes and some things that we've seen many times in other shows and what is going to make this show stand out. And I think what really got me is when I started researching this show a little bit and realizing where it came from, its origins, uh, because it was a book series. I thought, where are they going to go with this? And it started to really intrigue me. But before we get into it, we did mention that this is a discussion of the premiere only. So if you haven't seen the premiere of The Passage, uh, this is your spoiler warning right now. Go see it on your on-demand services and then come back to the podcast. Probably by the time you see this podcast in your feed, the second episode is about to air or already has aired, depending on when you downloaded it. But we're only going to be talking about the premiere. So it premiered on January 14th. And like I said, it's based on a trilogy of novels by Justin Cronin, which I was not aware of until I started taking notes for the podcast. This series only started in 2010 and it's got the full trilogy is complete and it covers a 90 year span, almost a hundred years. In fact, it even refers to the far future thousand years in the future from this apocalypse that's about to happen because we can see even in this pilot episode that we're really dealing with an evolution of the human species into vampire-like creatures. And it started me reminding me a little bit of not only aspects of Van Helsing, but also the strain a little bit, which actually dealt with vampires that were, that came about from a virus. Right. I mean, this is definitely not twilight when you hear Mike and I talking about vampires for the passage, at least <laughs> what we've seen thus far. Right. And this story has a little bit of history to it because it was originally supposed to be a movie. Executive producer Matt Reeves was going to direct it, but found the novels to be too expansive because I mentioned even in that first book, it does the stuff that we see here in the premiere with the how this came to be, how this end of the world, as we hear in the voiceover, comes to happen. But also it skips forward to when all hell has broken loose and we're dealing with a post-apocalypse like we've seen elsewhere. So the voiceover, like I said, of young Amy Belafonte, who's played wonderfully by the young actress Sanaya Sidney, who people may know from Hidden Figures, she indicates that she's speaking, the voiceover is speaking from a point of view farther in the future. After everything goes to hell, she even says at one point, this is how the world ends. 
So that seems to indicate to me that they are going to try and tackle this larger span that the book covers. And then I found an article from Deadline that was published early on when this first got picked up by Fox. And it also referred to the two time periods. And then after I found that, I found an article from, uh, I think it was sci-fi wire where they were covering the TCA press tour in 2018, where executive producer Liz Heldens explained, quote, we are just slowing down the story a little bit. The first season is about the good intentions and bad decisions that lead to the end of the world. As we know it, the plan right now is to have the first season be present day. And overall, I look at the book and I see three seasons of TV project, Noah, the colony, and then the last part of the book. And I'm glad she said it that way because I wanted to be able to share that interesting detail without spoilers. Cause I haven't read the book, but I can just picture that having a season one arc of how it all came to be and then skipping maybe forward in season two. And that actually is more exciting to me as a prospect than the premiere itself. (laughs) Well, you know, and it goes back to what you were saying about executive producer, Matt Reeves. And I understand he's playing with other people's money, but what were you thinking about a two hour movie? (laughs) Yeah, there's no way he could have done it. And in fact, the author, Justin Cronin thought of his novel as unadaptable. (laughs) So And I think he was right to a certain extent, but the TV project is going to take it on. It's interesting, though. Are you going to be playing with audience expectations where they are expecting this to be a government conspiracy tale? And then in season two, all of a sudden it's The Walking Dead. (laughs) Yeah. And that'll be interesting. And, And, you know, the line that Amy says at the beginning of the episode, the T.S. Eliot reference, I would certainly think this is how the world ends. She doesn't say not with a bang, but with a whimper. So (laughs) we wonder, is the human race going to be on the verge of extinction and come back? You know, it's pretty intriguing. Well, especially since, and we'll talk about this as we go through the episode, but they do seem to be heading towards a global pandemic of the avian flu anyway. So even if the vampire situation hadn't come up, they would have been in dire straits, but will it be able to morph from a government conspiracy to a post-apocalyptic tale season to season? Will Amy grow up with a shorter time jump. Maybe they'll compress it a little bit. Will it be a whole new cast in season two? I, I can't imagine they would get rid of Sonia Sydney. She kind of anchors this show, I think as a young actor. So I can't wait to see how they do this, how they accomplish it. But to start off, we have uh, the unexpected appearance of Henry Ian Cusick of lost fame <laughs> as he's heading through the Bolivian highlands with a team of doctors. There are rumors in 2015, because this is, a few years prior to the occurrences of the premiere rumors of a 250 year old man living in a cave in Bolivia. So they're being taken to this cave and they spot him from afar seems to be kind of living like a wild man in a cave. And this kind of fits with the premise of the book, which I believe deals with the virus initially being transmitted by bats. So here he is in the cave. Yeah. And for those of you that, Still haven't seen Lost. You might know Henry Ian Cusick from The Hundred. Oh, The Hundred too. Yeah, I should not just peg him to Lost fame. But yeah, he's playing a very recognizable type of character, but kind of understated in this premiere. He doesn't stick around too much, but it's his friend, Tim, that first gets attacked. I was kind of curious as to why their Bolivian guide, who seems to be a young man, who just kind of walks over to the vampire cage and just opens it up and lets the guy out. And it attacks the doctor named Tim and he becomes patient zero. So 
The voiceover from Amy says death would have been better. He's not dead after all. Actually, when he gets taken back to the hospital, Dr. Jonas Lear, who Henry Ian Cusick plays, is surprised to see his friend feeling amazing with not a scratch on his neck where his jugular vein was torn open moments before. And the only problem is he may feel amazing, but his teeth are falling out. So, you know, something's not quite right. And thus begins what's known as Project Noah, which takes us to present day Colorado. So I guess Project Noah being the idea that the human race is nearing extinction and you need a Noah-like figure to carry them off into the next phase. Yeah. And what is it about Colorado? It seems all of these shows take place on the West Coast. I mean, you know, you mentioned Van Helsing. Denver is a safe zone from the vampires at this point. Oh, really? <laughs> well, it was. It's not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, there was mention of the fact that the author of the book, uh, Justin Cronin, used places he had been to so that he could describe them in great detail. So I, I do think this is an interesting setting. But you can tell that we're going to have a road trip involved uh, that will take us far abreast of Telluride, Colorado, because uh, Mark Paul Gosseler is the other main star of this show. And, and the executive producers really wanted to uh, frame this show around the journey of Brad Walgast, who Mark plays in this series. You may remember Mark Paul Gosseler as, of course, uh, Zach from Saved by the Bell <laughs> way back in the 90s. He's looking quite different now, and I think he really has a good fit for this role. He seems like an ex-special ops soldier who has now become an enforcer for this clandestine government organization. So I think he really, maybe against expectation for some people, really is a good counterpoint to young Sanaya's charms. But Brad Walgast is, I guess, a charming fellow. He offers death row prisoners an ocean of time is how he puts it to participate in a drug trial that's supposed to cure all diseases. All human diseases will be gotten rid of. You just have to become part of the human trial. You're going to die anyway. So why not put your life to a good cause? And maybe you'll end up being cured of all diseases. Who knows? So um, a real charmer, this guy, he, he has a partner who's not quite as good with his bedside manner. So they're talking to Anthony Carter their next subject from death row. And we're going to see maybe his story play out as well. Although we only see the beginnings of it in this premiere, but what'd you think of Brad and his mission as it started out? Well, you know, what I really found interesting was Anthony Carter's reluctance to join this drug trial, knowing full well, he's about to be executed. Yeah. I guess he just didn't want people injecting him with stuff. And they also, he also felt that it was a little bit strange that he was even being offered this chance because it doesn't necessarily follow the letter of the law. I have, I have the feeling that these guys are dealing with some desperate measures. Well, sure. But I also like the way it's set against Amy's skepticism later on when she's taken from her foster home and fed a story and this reluctance right away of these two characters. And as you said, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with Anthony Carter, because what they realize right away is that they need a younger test subject, which is how Amy comes into play. And that at 25, even Anthony Carter's a little bit too old for what they need. Well, that's actually a good point. I was kind of wondering at that point, 
So why bring him in at all? <laughs> why not just skip right to Amy? But I guess that was someone who was already in the books. But it's there's a couple of interesting coincidences that I want to talk about. Because at first I was kind of like, wait a minute, that's a little too convenient. But then I stopped to think about it. The uh, first one was the fact that there's an avian flu epidemic that has begun in Asia. And it's set to be a global pandemic. They know this. They see it happening. There have already been thousands of deaths in some Asian, Southeast Asian countries. I'm not sure where. But my question is, was that the original impetus for the 2015 search where Tim and Jonas went on that Bolivian wild goose chase to find a 250 year old man? Or was the fact that in 2015 they were just searching for a cure all that would make them lots of money in, in the pharmaceutical world or something like that. Cause it seems to be a hell of a coincidence that 2015 they already had begun this mission, but the pandemic isn't until present day. I mean, this is exactly when you need a cure all like this. Right. And as you said, we're only going to talk about the first episode. So you'd like to think that that is something that's going to be addressed because maybe it is just the fact that there's this 250 year old guy living in a cave, well, we need to find out what his secret to longevity actually is. Yeah. And and then how fortuitous that it came at a time when we really need some outside of the box thinking. And in fact, this, I don't even know what to call it, some kind of medical committee, some, uh, you know, secret government organization that has been carrying on Project Noah has discovered over the course of those intervening years that since Tim, they've gotten maybe what five six seven other subjects all of the subjects declined less quickly into blood-sucking monsters he's very careful not to use the word vampire although he does anyway in describing how not to refer to these guys but they've got people who i assume will start to crop up in other episodes including that really creepy looking white supremacist lady with the shaved head i thought she was kind of cool and then there's the youngest member of the current list of subjects, which is Shauna Babcock. She looks relatively unchanged. She still is kind of emotionless and bug-like in her movements. And we see later in the episode that she does have a little bit of mental manipulation that seems to be one of the powers uh, besides being able to heal very quickly and and be cured of all diseases. Very vampire-like in that sense as well. But Anthony Carter is still going to be brought in, still going to be subjected to it. I don't know if he's younger still even than Shauna Babcock, but apparently 25 is still not young enough, and they're, but they're still going to see what happens. But this committee member who kind of conveniently does a recap of what we know so far comes to the conclusion that they need a child. And Dr. Nicole Sykes, who seems to be that the leader of the team, but also does seem to have a conscience. She, she doesn't seem to be completely without any moral compunction about what she's about to do, but she realizes that she's going to have to make this tough choice to bring in a child that has no paper trail, someone that no one's going to miss hasn't been in the system yet and will help them cure all diseases, maybe find a cure for the pandemic as well, because the young child can adjust to whatever it is that's transforming these other people into vampires such that she doesn't change. I'm not sure why they think their child subject wouldn't also become needing to feed on blood or something would change besides just being cured of all diseases. But, 
But I guess that's just the premise that we're going to have to start off with. (laughs) All right. And I guess it has something to do with cellular generation, regeneration, all this sciencey stuff with about which I have no clue. But (laughs) but, you know, anytime you put a child in this sort of position as a showrunner, as a network, you really run a risk. So I was not all that surprised that Brad has second thoughts and then decides to run so that we, at this point, don't see Amy placed in the test subject situation. Because my first thought was, all right, they're going to get some child that's got leukemia or some other childhood disease that is incurable. But no, they're just going to get somebody that's not in the system or won't be missed. Yeah. And it's like something that they could have done perhaps even with the older subjects, like taking some homeless people that wouldn't be missed instead of death row inmates. But, but yeah, Amy's got a different journey and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but let's take a quick break and then we'll be back and talk about Amy's journey with Brad. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. All right. So one of the aspects that I really enjoyed about the passage was Amy Belafonte's journey. I guess it's across several states. So it gives Brad Wolgast a chance to kind of bond with her a little bit. And I think they did this well, where they had a couple of different moments to allow this to happen. But the story of Amy Belafonte is, of course, her mother has died of an overdose at age 32, and they come across her in the system, I guess, just before she's put into foster care. So the paperwork has not been filled out yet. She's 10 years old, and Brad is sent by his friend, I guess, in the operation, some security guy named Clark, who I guess they served together in the military. And he says, I got the next one for you. You brought in Anthony. Here's the next assignment. And Brad doesn't even blink. He says, yeah, I'll take care of it. And he isn't prepared, I think, for 
what's about to happen because Amy is about to charm the pants off of him. Not to mention his own personal history seems to be at play. Right. And the question, why does she run when her situation in this foster home doesn't seem to be the best? But one thing we learn early on is that this is a smart young girl yeah and she just senses intuitively that something is not right about this and it probably goes far beyond the fact that they did not send a woman yeah why no social worker she thinks that this story that they're feeding her that okay your mother may have died of a virus not of a drug overdose dose and we need to get you tested in this special lab out in colorado and she is not buying it for a second so she does run, but what's key here is that Brad's partner, who I mentioned does not have the best bedside manner in the world, is kind of rough in apprehending Amy to bring her in, and he's seen by a bunch of people in a nearby park, and Brad seems to indicate that one of them may have even called the cops, which is not the kind of under-the-radar operation that they meant to do. They wanted to grab the girl, not get noticed, and not even be under anyone's suspicion. So Brad actually calls Clark because he says, you know what? Let's abort this one. We'll find someone else. You don't need this particular girl. It can be any girl. Clark says, no, it must be this girl. And you can see the seeds of doubt start to sprout in Brad as he realizes that it's not just his partner. That's a little bit rough with this kid. It's the organization he's working for. Why do they need a kid? They don't tell him why he's getting these prisoners. All he knows is that it has something to do with a cure for all diseases, but he doesn't know what's actually happening to them once they get to Colorado. Well, he, he doesn't. And I wonder if they're going to end up at Cheyenne mountain. <laughs> yeah, that would be appropriate. <laughs> uh, and it would be cool as well. But do you think it's when he talks to his wife? Do you think that's the tipping point that causes him to reevaluate what it is he's doing with this 10 year old girl. Oh, for sure. And I think that was a really well done catalyst for his actions because that's where he goes full rogue because, you know, it, it's an interesting transition because I thought getting car sick in the backseat, Amy is making a big deal out of reading a wrinkle in time. It's a book that her mother gave her. She's read it a bunch of times. The fact that Brad treats her with kid gloves and tells his partner to go get some ginger ale and crackers and even gives her the front seat so she doesn't get car sick again. You know, it irks his partner, but at the same time it wins him points with Amy. Now is the stop at the carnival a bit much? Perhaps I thought that was like, okay, you know, we can be nice to her, but she's already started to bond with him in the car. We can see that. Did he really need to stop at the carnival? But once I saw how that scene unfolded, not only with the winning the unicorn with the air rifle, which was just such a great scene to kind of show her ability to, you know, use her confidence, use her skill and his ability to sort of pep talk her into being able to win that giant unicorn. Plus what we learned from the phone call with his ex-wife, those two ingredients together equal he's going to protect this girl at all costs. Right. And it's almost like I get that feeling he's going to take her to this carnival, give her one last childhood memory before. And, and he doesn't really know what they're going to do with him. But as you alluded a minute ago, I, he experienced enough to know it's probably not good. Right. And, and I did experience a moment of discomfort when his wife, Lila, uh, called and he sort of walks away from her at the booth 
where she just won the big unicorn because he's not even looking in her direction. Right. And I just figure she might run off or get captured. But no, that's not what happens. It's it's the fact that we hear this conversation with his ex-wife who doesn't want to be his ex-wife, it sounds like. There was a incident three years ago. They refer to Eva, who I assume is a dead daughter. We get hints of the fact that she might have been around Amy's age. We see a picture of her, I think, at one point. But we're still kind of vague about that at this point. But clearly he's had a loss that's caused him to blame himself, divorce himself from someone he loved and who loved him and who perhaps wants him back. But Lila is calling to tell him that, you know, she's going to get married to her current beau and wants to have another child, wants to get her life started again. And I guess he's not at that point. So because he says, no, I can't do anything, I'm not going to tell you to to stop. I'm not going to tell you not to do those things, even though she encourages him to do exactly that. But after he gets off that call, like you said, that's what causes him to say, you know what? Screw this. <laughs> Puts his partner in a chokehold in the bathroom and runs off with Amy. So I thought that was just a really well done narrative. Yeah, I agree. But back at the Project Noah headquarters, we do have some interesting things going on, including Jonas playing his old friend, Tim, some of his favorite music. I think he just basically thinks that even though Tim has gone down the rabbit hole of becoming the father of all vampires. I'm not sure what, but he thinks maybe his friend is still in there somewhere. But what's interesting, I think, is that his colleagues in this project are very, you know, blase about the fact that, oh, no, he's not in there. We're just, you know, dealing with mindless beasts. And yet they're very dismissive of the fact that they're having nightmares where they can hear these subjects talking to them in their sleep and they're just very dismissive. Oh, you know, those are just dreams, but Babcock becomes laser focused on Clark. She's kind of a pretty young blonde who Clark seems very uneasy about. And Clark is of course that security guy who is friends with Brad. So he's a tough guy. And yet you can see he's uneasy, uh, knows her as having, killed her parents and that's why she was on death row as a young woman. But you know, when they have feeding time and she drinks the blood from the little fountain that they have in her cell, clearly you can see that this is someone who's no longer human really. And yet Clark later has visions of Babcock making sexual advances on him. So I think he's been visited by her before in his sleep and there's clearly a mental connection going on between these vampires and the humans around them. And I think they're being dangerously in denial about it. Yeah. That scene with the uh, feeding time and the, <laughs> and the blood trough was, <laughs> that was fairly gruesome. Yeah. And, and what also came out of that, of course, with Clark was that he and Nicole, the main doctor of project Noah are together, perhaps clandestinely. So we'll, we'll have to see that relationship unfold as well. I thought that was um, obviously something that, makes things a little bit more interesting back home, but they are told that Brad has gone rogue and Clark is ready to do what needs to be done. And I assume that means take Brad out and bring the girl in because they can't brook that kind of, of rebellion. So Anthony, meanwhile, is still back at project Noah as a new subject. And he's visited by Tim who at first I thought, okay, what's going on here? He's in his doctor's, coat. He's visiting Anthony. They actually hide his face for a little while. 
but apparently Anthony is just being visited in his sleep by Tim, letting him know that what is about to happen to him will be really bad at first, but then it will be glorious. So he's kind of preparing Anthony for what's to come, which is kind of scary. Right. And they're just teasing these powers at this point. Yeah. We'll see what happens to Anthony. That That's kind of in its initial phases, but we did concentrate on Brad and Amy. And I think that was the right choice for the premiere. Brad actually spends some time on the road. And I think they stop at like a sort of a nature spot where they go up beside this raging river where Brad decides that it's important for Amy to say goodbye to her mother because he found out that there was no funeral service. There was no time for a funeral service or probably the money after her mother died. And before she went into the foster home for her to kind of get her emotions out. So it allows her to mourn. It does a little bit more bonding between the two of them. And I just love how they wrote this character's lines where she's acting like a 10 year old. You know, yes. she, she's, you know, just talking about the memories of her mom making a donut hole cake for her birthday one time. And she's just doing it, going through the motions because this adult has told her to do so. But after he keeps saying, what else, what else, what else? She finally shares something honest and real and the emotions break through. And, and this actress has no problems turning on the waterworks and in a very real and authentic manner. So what we're left with at the end of this episode is that Brad is calling Lila while they're on the run. And I guess he just wants to let her know that he's not this kidnapper that's being portrayed on the news, which is how they've characterized his, his escaping with this young girl. And Lila kind of very savvily pretends like she's talking to a patient of hers because Clark and his team are there at her house you know, so she, he has to basically let her know that he's not a bad guy, but the conversation I think makes him realize that, you know what, I can't be on the run like this. And I really liked this final moment where he sees a cop and thinks, you know, they can't do anything bad to this kid at this point. She's in the news. I'll just turn myself in and everything will be okay. At least I've protected this young girl from being anonymously rounded up. But once they're in sheriff's custody, the department of defense calls and he realizes, wait a minute, this could actually end up very poorly. Now I I think they did kind of bumble that ending a little bit where he changed his mind too quickly with very little prompting. Did you feel that way about that? Yeah, I did. But again, you know, once the black SUVs become involved and I think he knows that's where it's headed. Yeah. So they have this great gunfight to end up the episode and when they're, Standing on opposite ends of the hallway, he and Clark are at gunpoint, and I think Brad just wants Clark to explain to him what's going to happen to Amy. So he just says, explain it to me. I don't understand. Okay, I agree. Why don't you explain it to me, and this will all be able to be resolved. And it makes me wonder is if when Clark describes to him what is going to happen, maybe Amy will be persuaded to turn herself in and say, okay, if, if it's for a cure all for, for humanity and there's a flu involved, maybe they don't have to tell her about the vampire part, but maybe they'll be brought in even as early as the second episode. I'll be interested to see what happens in the first half of the season. You might say, yeah, I mean, it's got a lot of promise. I was pleasantly surprised, right? Whether it would devolve into 
a version of the strain and the walking dead and Van Helsing and that kind of thing remains to be seen. I think they have to be very careful where they tread with that. We've seen a lot of viral zombies and viral vampires lately in genre television. So I think they've started it off with a really cool focus. And like I said, the larger picture of where the novels go might give this a really unique flavor if it's given enough time to, to blossom, but we'll see how season one turns out. And I'd be interested to hear what our listeners think of this initial episode and, and whether they'll be sticking with it. But we got our show topics done for the month of January, Dave. So what do we have left before we get into our February topics? What's left in January? Well, we are going to talk about star-crossed lovers. And for those of you that want to participate on social media, we'd certainly encourage you to. But what we're going to be talking about are human-alien relationships. Right. This is our discussion topic. You remember in previous versions of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we had two show topics, an interview, and a discussion topic. So this will be purely just talking about, you know, something that we've noticed in genre television. And I think romantic couples between humans and aliens is a fun one to talk about. If you'd like to contribute your own that we'll share on the podcast, go to facebook.com and find the thread there on the sci-fi fidelity Facebook group. It's at facebook.com slash groups slash sci-fi fidelity, or you can get in contact with us on Twitter at sci-fi fidelity. So that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. Keep the discussion going on social media. You can follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. And like I said, we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in the meantime, we'd love it if you could rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. And be sure to send us your suggestions for future topics on social media or via email at Sci-Fi Fidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 